Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I, I want to ask you to go ahead and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. That's what we're going to be unpacking together. The first half of that chapter, and this is a section in this letter where the gloves come off. There have been a couple sections already where Paul's been pretty straightforward against these people that have come in behind him amongst his friends, trying to, trying to peddle a different version of Jesus than the one he handed on. But what he said so far is restrained, careful, almost gracious compared to what he says from here to the end of the letter. It is deeply personal. His language is often sarcastic, laced with irony and even a little bit snarky. He sees him, and there's a, there's a reason that he takes his gloves off here. Paul thinks that he is in a battle for the souls of his friends. And in this, chap- this chapter, in this section of chapter 11, he puts a point on his main concern for them. There's, he, he puts a point on something that's underlying everything he said earlier in the letter and everything he's going to say later on in this letter. He's worried that his friends are going to settle for a counterfeit version of Jesus. I just want to briefly walk you through what he says here that shows us that's what he's concerned about. And then I want us to ask together, how might we be susceptible to what Paul's concerned for in his friends. What is he worried about? How can we avoid it in ourselves? I want to begin by reading the first, 11, uh, excuse me, the first 15 verses of chapter 11. If Hopefully you found that by now. If you have, please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read these verses. This is the word of the Lord to us from the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For someone comes... And proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed. Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received. Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted. You put up with it readily enough. Indeed I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I didn't burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. What I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. And even from a quick reading, surely you can see Paul is deeply concerned here. I want to I pull the thread of his concern. Make sure you can see three different layers to it. Then I'm going to come back over that and try to bring a point to it. Try to, try to come back over it and, and make sure that the, the overarching point is clear. What, is, what he's worried about is clear. Let me pull three layers back. Peel back three layers of this onion of his concern. And then I'm going to, I'm going to try to summarize it. So here's layer number one. You saw this in verse 2 when we read it. Paul's worried that his friends are going to fall in love with the wrong groom. Did you get that from verse 2? I feel a divine jealousy for you, Paul says. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin in Christ. But I'm afraid that your thoughts are going to be led astray. He's worried they're going to fall in love with the wrong groom. Now, earlier in this letter, Paul's already told us that he sees himself not as trying to attach these people to him. But as a middleman, he's already called himself an ambassador. An ambassador is one who, who doesn't have his own people. He's, he represents the words of a king. And he represents that king's words to someone else. He's a middleman. He's just a, a conduit for information. Paul's described himself as an ambassador before. Now he's shifting the image. It's, it's more like the father in an ancient culture who would be responsible for betrothing a daughter to that daughter's husband-to-be. And it would be that father's responsibility to make sure that his daughter was protected and cultivated and prepared for her wedding day. So now Paul's imagining himself as a matchmaker. No matter what his image is, you can see Paul's never about himself. He's not trying to attach his friends to him, to his gifts, his compelling teaching, to his personal charismatic personality. It's not about him. He wants to connect his friends to them. And, and, and that's something I, to, to, he wants to connect his friends to Jesus. That's something I want you to be able to see all the way through this text. In the middle of the, the passage, some verses that we won't, we won't spend much time on this morning because we're going to come back to the similar themes next week. It, Paul is defending himself. He did say, yeah, so they, they said I wasn't very skilled at speaking and touche, I guess. I'm not great at speaking, but I'm not unskilled in knowledge. I do know the truth. Or then he comes back around to this charge about him not taking any money from them when he was there. Apparently they'd taken that personally. They only... They only wanted as much apostle as they could pay for, I guess. I guess they figured you get what you pay for and that if they didn't pay anything for him, then, then, then do they really want to be known as a people who follow a tent maker in a culture that celebrated rhetoric, in a culture where you wanted to line yourself up with somebody who could command a high honorarium? So they were offended. They were put off a little bit. Paul is writing to explain himself to them. I, I didn't want to burden you because I didn't want to be up under your thumb. I don't work for any man. I, I serve a king. So Paul is defending himself here, but, but this, these two verses, verse 2 and verse 3, explain to us, help us to see, he's not defending himself just to clear his own name. He doesn't care about his own reputation. He's defending himself because if they miss out on him, they may miss out on Jesus. He is their path. He is their matchmaker. And he's afraid they may settle for something less than the truth. He's afraid they'll give their affections to someone else. That's the first layer of his concern. Verse 4 takes us into layer number 2. Peel back the onion one more layer. And you realize, oh, Paul's not actually concerned that they're going to leave Jesus for some other God. 
He's not concerned that these folks will go back to the Greek deities or the Roman deities they would have grown up worshiping. He's not afraid of them trading Jesus for, for an alternative religion altogether. He's afraid they're going to settle for the wrong Jesus. Look what he says in verse 4. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, different version of who he is, different version of what he offers, different version of what he demands from those who will follow him. He's worried about another Jesus, or as he says later in that verse, another gospel, a different one, different set of news from what you've already accepted. He's not worried that they're shopping around for another religion. He's worried that they seem to be putting up with this different version of Jesus than the true one. That's layer number two. So Paul's a matchmaker. He sees himself as responsible for getting this bride to the right groom at their wedding. He's afraid of a runaway bride situation. But maybe, maybe a better image is, is that he's afraid that when that bride gets to the wedding, the wrong groom is going to be standing there. It'll be a different version than the one he's taught them about. Now here's layer number three. This comes out... Uh, a little later on in the passage, after he's done defending himself from verses 7 to, to 11, in verse 12, he, he points to something else that's concerning him, something else that he needs them to know and, and pay attention to. He says, what I'm doing, sort of defending myself, calling you back to the true Jesus, I'm going to continue to do. I'm going to continue to do it because I need to undermine, he says, the claims of those who would like to claim that they work on the same terms we do, but they don't. He's warning them against what he calls false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguised as apostles of Christ when really they're servants of Satan. Right here, the gloves come off. He's swinging for the fences. He's holding nothing back. What he's worried about is that his friends are going to fall for a counterfeit version of Jesus because they listen to some people who actually claim to represent Jesus, but don't. Their danger is not the priests down at the local temple to Diana. Their danger is people coming, claiming to represent Jesus who who actually represent Satan. It's interesting that Paul goes there. I think even just a quick look at the history of the church, even just in America, in the last 150 years shows that the greatest threats to the health, the genuineness of our Christianity are not, are not the, the sort of staunch and loud-mouthed atheists like Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins, but have been insiders to the Christian tradition who begin to adapt the message of Christianity to suit modern tastes. They always will come robed in righteousness, claiming to represent a higher moral standard claiming to represent progress, the downward arc of history. But Paul is saying, don't fall into this trap. They look like servants of righteousness, but in reality, they're servants of Satan. What is Paul worried about here? Clearly, he's worried his friends are going to be deceived. But I, I mean, I want to know more, don't you? I want to know what is this different Jesus? What is this different gospel he thinks they're going to settle for? How could we recognize it in ourselves? I mean, Paul's warning us that we won't recognize it unless we pay close attention. It'll look good to us. It'll feel right. It'll even look faithful, potentially. 
What is this other Jesus that Paul's worried his friends will be deceived into following? He doesn't say, at least not in verse 11, or excuse me, chapter 11. He doesn't say it here. But I think we can recognize what, what he's talking about just from what else he said in this letter and from what he said in his first letter to the Corinthians. This isn't the only chapter we have, thanks be to God. We have other things we can pull from to know where Paul's coming from. I, I want to I take you back, actually, to the first letter that he wrote to these friends. In 1 Corinthians, in the, in the second chapter, right near the beginning of this letter, Paul says to his friends that when he was on the way to them, imagining what he was going to do when he got there, he resolved, he made a conscious decision that when he got there, he was only going to talk to them about one thing. He was going to talk to them about Christ and him crucified. That's 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I resolved, Paul said, that when I came to you, I would know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. The pastor that's been really helpful to me, uh, he's, he's passed away now. He, he, his name is John Stott. He pastored in London for a long time. He, he writes about second, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, this sort of ministry manifesto, if you will, that, of, of Paul. He, he talks about the, the fact that, that Paul makes this conscious decision when he comes to Corinth. He knows who he's dealing with. He knows where they're going to be tempted. He knows where he's going to be tempted in speaking to them. Stott picks up on this phrase. I decided, I resolved, when I came to you, I was going to know Christ and him crucified, nothing else. Stott says, but that, that decision was, was an intentional one. There's something that went lied behind it. What was that? Why did Paul have to make a decision like that? And Stott says, behind Paul's decision to preach only Christ and especially the cross, there lay an alternative, indeed a temptation, either to preach Christ without a cross or to preach Christ, or not to preach Christ at all, but rather the wisdom of the world. Paul, when he came to these friends, knew where these friends were going to struggle with the true gospel. He knew where they would resist the rough edges of the real Jesus. He knew that if he was going to get through to them with the true gospel and connect them to the true Jesus, he was going to have to double down on the cross. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about it so many different, several different times. He's summarizing what the gospel is, the essence of what he preaches, the message he came as an ambassador to deliver to them. And the cross is central to it all through that chapter. He says, just from what Matt read earlier in our service, the love of Christ controls us, he said, because we've concluded this, one has died for all, therefore all have died. Or at the end of that, uh, end of that, of that section, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul's gospel that he came to hand on, it, 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 it centers on Jesus crucified. And he decided, he put the death of Jesus right there at the center of his message to these people and to make sure that his demeanor and his words fit that message of a suffering Savior, to make sure they wouldn't get distracted, to make sure that, as he put it in 1 Corinthians 2, that their faith wouldn't rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And Paul knew what he was doing. He made this conscious decision because he knew who he was dealing with. He knew they'd have a hard time with the cross. He knew they'd prefer another Jesus, another sort of Savior to that one. 
And he knew that there is only one Jesus that can do anybody any lasting good. And that's a Jesus with scars. He knew that that Jesus, the scarred Jesus, didn't square with what they wanted. These friends wanted power, status. But Jesus triumphed through weakness and shame. These friends wanted to stand out, to rise above the crowd. But Jesus definitely makes sense to those who recognize how desperate and helpless they really are. That rising above the crowd is not going to happen for them. They wanted to establish themselves. Jesus gave himself up on purpose. They wanted a Jesus without a cross. And Paul knows that's another Jesus altogether. That's another gospel. What's Paul worried about? He's worried that these friends will turn to, will wed themselves to a Jesus who didn't die for them. And that's a Jesus who couldn't do them any good. Now, I think that's straightforwardly what Paul is worried about in this passage. I think the fact that it's clear and straightforward gives us the freedom to take a step back and try to imagine with the rest of the time we have this morning, how might we fall into the same trap his friends were, were risking falling into? How can we recognize in our own hearts a drift away from a Jesus who had to die? How can we avoid, in other words, what Paul was worried about in our time and in our place? I want to focus on the cross. I've said this so many times already just in this series. Uh, I think that the Corinthians, their context, what they were like, what they wanted from life, what they wanted from Jesus is as close to our context and our natural hardwired desires uh, as, as any other book, any other context that the Bible addresses. I think that makes us, like the Corinthians, susceptible to this kind of Jesus, versions of Jesus that tone down the rough edges. The kind of Jesus that wouldn't have to be crucified to save me. I want us to reflect on this for a bit. I want us to notice three things. Three things that we must accept about Jesus if we want to avoid marrying ourselves to another Jesus, another gospel, one that can't do us any good. So this is a word to us, as those of us who are believers here this morning, three things we need to be careful to avoid and to recognize in our own hearts if we're being pulled away from the Jesus handed down to us. And it's also a word to those of you who are perhaps are not Christians yet, but considering Jesus, a word about how important it is to accept the cross and not tone it down if you want to connect with the Jesus who can actually save you. There are three things we have to accept, three things we're going to be tempted to reject, three rough edges, if you will, of the message of Jesus crucified for sinners that we'll be tempted to smooth out. That would end up connecting us to a Jesus that's not the true one who can actually save us. Here's the first thing. Three things we've got to accept if we want to avoid the trap Paul was warning of. First, we've got to accept the foolishness of the cross. This is another reference to something Paul said at the very beginning of his first letter to these, these same people. He said, he came to them knowing nothing but the foolishness of the cross. He 
describes how God chose to save the world in a way that no one would have expected so that no one gets to claim that they are in insiders to what God is doing because they figured something out because they earned some special status because they passed some unique special test he chose to save in a way no one would have designed it so that no one gets to boast so that everyone who's saved is saved by his power and his wisdom alone Paul talks about the foolishness of the cross and just accepting it and even embracing it and I don't know I, I, I any more than these Corinthians, I don't know anyone in our context, and this includes myself, I don't know anyone who's naturally drawn to the cross. I know plenty more people, myself included, who are, who are at least naturally wired to see it as a kind of foolishness, at least by instinct. I don't remember, I don't remember ever hearing someone say, you know what I really love about Jesus is the cross. At least not by instinct. I think we get there but not naturally. I, I don't remember hearing anyone say, you know what I love, what really compels me, what moves me is all that blood. The blood just gets to me. All that violence moves me. It's much more common, in my experience anyway, to be drawn to things like Jesus' vision of concern for the poor or a God who loves even those who don't deserve it, and it calls others to love one another in his name. We're drawn to a God who's nearby, who's close, who wants a relationship with us, as well we should be. But all this blood, this wrath, it sounds so primitive and otherworldly. If that's, if that's a struggle for you, if that's something that you're wrestling with even now while you sit here, I want to I just say a couple of things to help you think this through. I think in a couple of ways, it isn't as foolish as it seems on the surface, perhaps, to you. And then in one way, you've got to accept the foolishness that it will always be in the eyes of the world. Now, first, a couple of ways in which it's not as foolish, perhaps, as it seems to you, on the, as it may seem to you on the surface. At the heart of the gospel's message is a message of forgiveness, of peace because an offended party who was mistreated, who was wronged, has decided to forgive those who did the wrong. And what we know from our own experience of forgiveness, to whatever extent we've ever been successful in forgiving anyone, we know that forgiveness is always costly. It always means that the person who was wronged has to eat some of that pain. They have to take it on themselves rather than making the person who hurt them pay for it. Forgiveness is always costly. And the gospel is not a claim that Jesus is for us. And in his own life and death, he appeases the wrath of a God who is not for us. A kind of distant Zeus-like arch deity who's, who's just raw and angry all the time. And, who, and whose wrath Jesus appeased. The gospel's message, this, this stretches the bounds of our minds. I don't pretend to fully understand this intellectually, but what the Bible says to us is that at, at the same time that God is punishing Jesus, he's also accepting that punishment on himself. That the relationship between the Father and the Son is one of deep and intimate and personal love and affection that there is an identity between them such that when Jesus died, the Father was bearing in himself the cost of forgiving us, the greatest imaginable pain to him. 
the deepest loss that he could have experienced. The gospel's message is that that God chose that cost willingly so that he could forgive, so that he could not demand that we pay the cost for what we've done. That's just forgiveness, friends. Forgiveness always means pain. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus is God himself taking that pain on himself so that we don't have to pay it. Here's another, here's another thought. Maybe you haven't considered this. If the cross seems like foolishness to you, if it's alienating to you, and not the kind of God, a God that would demand that, it's not the kind of God you'd like to worship and serve. If you prefer to that God, one who's loving, then consider that without the cross, God is not more loving but less Without the cross as what's necessary for us to to know peace with him. Without that cost as the one he had to pay to love us into peace and forgiveness. If, If the cost was only such that God could have just shrugged his shoulders and looked away from our sin rather than holding it against us. That's not a more costly love, is it? What costs more? What's more loving? For me to forgive someone who steals my seat at the dinner table? Or for me to forgive someone who steals my car out of the driveway? I can't react to the theft of my car the same way I react to the theft of my seat at a dinner table because my car is way more valuable. Forgiving that is going to be way more costly to me, way more loving And it's in the cross that we see the measure of God's love, even for sinners like us. If we want a loving God, the cross is where we see his love more than anywhere else. Now, I I say these two things, maybe help complicate the picture a little bit if you're struggling with the foolishness of the cross, but I want to finish this point just by acknowledging there is no explanation that is going to change how this sounds to the wise to the well-educated, to the best and the brightest of this era or any other. And friends, if you want to accept Jesus, the true Jesus that Paul introduced to his friends and through his writings to us, if you want to accept that Jesus, then you need to accept rejection as Jesus did because this will never seem like anything but foolishness in the eyes of the world. How can we avoid what Paul's worried about? Marrying a crossless Jesus? Well, at first we're going to have to accept that it will be foolishness. Here's the second thing we've got to accept. Another place we need to look carefully for our own hearts to be deceived and drawn away from Jesus. We'll have to accept the exclusivity of the cross. To avoid what Paul's worried about, just trading in the real Jesus for another counterfeit version of Jesus, a Jesus that doesn't require a cross, then we're going to have to accept the exclusivity of the cross. Here's what I mean. The gospel of the cross says that our biggest need is peace with God, to be reconciled to one who, who, who we have made our enemy. Yes, it's true that we need to be at peace with ourselves. That's true. That's something that the Bible speaks to, that the the inner turmoil, angst over who we are and what we've done and what we've been. 
there's a peace that needs to happen inside of us. But that's, that's not the peace we need most. Yes, it's true that we need to be reconciled with each other. We need peace in our own relationships and in the world at large. The Bible talks about that. That's an important kind of peace that, that we're, we're called to do the work of and to expect from God, but not most of all. That kind of peace could have been accomplished by you know, a, a more qualified guru or a powerful inspirational leader. We need another sort of peace. At the heart of what all humans everywhere need is peace with God. And that comes only through the cross. What the gospel says all through the New Testament is that Jesus didn't die as a tragic accident. He didn't die a death like that of MLK or or Gandhi. Powerful, inspirational leaders doing great good in the world, resisted by the powers of evil and ultimately killed by them. Those deaths were tragic. Those deaths should be mourned. Those deaths were useful to the causes these men supported, inspiring others to take up their cause and to to, to take the, the banner further. But Jesus' death wasn't inspirational. His death was intentional. He talked about it ahead of time as the purpose of his life. He talked about his death as something he had to accomplish something that was necessary for forgiveness and peace for for anybody. And that claim has always been offensive. It's especially offensive, I think, in in our time, in our place. We live in a global context where we know more about other religions than we've ever known before. It's impossible to escape that knowledge if you open your eyes and pay attention. I mean, when I first started grad school, the first semester, uh, my first semester of grad school, I had a class called... um, uh, something like the study of religion, something that basic and boring. The point of this class was just to sort of survey what religion is like as a thing. So not what each religion is like, but what religion is like. And of course, the, in the academic study of religion, that's what you're always doing. You're trying to figure out what are all these religions, what do they have in common? What is religion even? And, you know, in that class, you're studying the different religions. There are things that, we, that, that are in common between the religions uh, around the world. You know, for example, most religions, maybe you could say even all religions, are trying to help people find their way to some sort of peace in their lives, to some sort of meaning or purpose that gives their lives some direction that helps them not to feel hopeless. One sociologist described all religions as the kind of banner that you rally to to face down death. These things are, are common across religions all across the world, and, and there's no need to deny that, to push back on that. But at the heart of Christianity is an entirely unique claim that God makes peace with sinners by taking their punishment on himself. At the heart of Christianity is a claim that what we need is not enlightenment. We don't primarily need to know what the world is like as it is so that we can live better in it. What we need is atonement. So aren't the religions of the world all doing the same things? Well, in a way, yeah, they're trying to. But in a way, no, they absolutely are not. Think of all the religions of the world in the, in the sense that they're alike. You can think of them as, as all different versions of the same drug, the same active ingredient. That's the way in graduate school we were trained to explore religion and try to understand them. 
Uh, so, you know, if you've, if you've got a common cold or a headache or something, you can go to the drugstore and pick from one of 20 different varieties of Tylenol or what have you. Acetaminophen, I think. Is that right? Go ahead, nodding. Acetaminophen. There's all these generic versions of it. All these drugs really are trying to do the same thing. They're, they're, they're applied to the same symptoms. And they can offer some sort of symptom relief. But imagine that there was a cure for the common cold. And it wasn't just about symptom relief, but there was an actual ingredient discovered. A proprietary ingredient found in one drug and one drug only. Well, then you could look at all the drugs that are treating the common cold and you could say, well, they're all the same. They're all, they're all trying to do the same thing. They're trying to help people cope with colds. But in reality, you have one that's specifically able to cure what all the others are just controlling. In that sense, if, if there was such an ingredient, then just the fact that they're all trying to do the same things doesn't make them all equal. The question is, how do they do what they set out to do? Are they able to deliver on what they set out to accomplish? At the heart of the Christian gospel is that for us to know the peace all of us want, we need the atonement only Jesus can give us. The cross is irreplaceable, irreducibly unique, and essential. We've got to accept the exclusivity of the cross, even though it's offensive, if we want to accept the true Jesus. And here's the last thing. I'll close with this one. We've got to accept the humiliation of the cross. We've got to get comfortable accepting the humiliation of the cross. And here's what I mean. The cross is, because, because the gospel tells us Jesus died on purpose, it wasn't just a tragic, unfortunate accident. It wasn't just the powers that be overcoming him in his cause. But it was his choice it was what he came to do with his life. Because that's the nature of what the gospel says about the cross. What it implies is that there's no other way. There was no way that cup could pass from him. This was how people get saved even though they don't deserve it. This is how sinners get made right and holy and clean. No other way. And that's a humiliating message to accept about yourself. If Jesus were just a powerful teacher, then we could follow him, maybe try to understand what he taught, maybe take advantage of the new wisdom he passed on to us, and our lives might be better. But at the end of the day, we could claim some credit for that, right? I was able to listen to his words, to understand his words, to see their value and embrace his teachings in my life. I'm part of that story. If Jesus were a guru whose goal in life was to provide us some new higher level of existence, some new insight into the way that things are. If Jesus, in other words, were like a ladder that you climb to some new and higher level of being, well, then once you get up there, do you really need that ladder? At that point, you could, you could shove the ladder off. You've reached that place and other people are climbing other ladders up to the same place. If, if enlightenment were what Jesus came to do, then you could kind of take him or leave him depending on what your tastes were. But the point was to get to this enlightened state where I am one who gets what the world is really like. 
If Jesus were a model we were supposed to follow, and somebody that you wanted to be like, a path that you walk, well, that's a path that you're going to have to walk in your own strength. And maybe you give him credit as the person who showed you the way, but ultimately at the end of that journey, people are talking about the road that you walked, not the road that he walked. This is the kind of, these, are, these are versions of Jesus that feed our pride. And the cross makes no sense at all if that's what you want from Jesus. Because in the cross, what we have, friends, what we have in the cross is the ultimate picture of the seriousness of our sin that could be handled in no other way and the depths of our helplessness. What we have in the cross is a call to accept our own humiliation. Its statement about what we've become on our own. Its statement about the only way we become different than what we are. We'll never overcome our objections to the cross, our distaste for it, until we come to believe that We are sinners who haven't loved our maker, who haven't been grateful to our provider, who have not loved others in the way that he's loved us. Until we recognize that we are not those who need a ladder to climb or some new program to follow or some deeper insight to embrace, but a redeemer who can make us clean who can set us free, who can give us peace and purpose. The cross will only sound good to us when we've come to the end of ourselves and accepted what it says about us. Jesus in Luke 18 tells the story of a Pharisee and what has often been called the publican, this tax collector, both praying to God. The Pharisee prays to God and is really just listing off his resume. Thank you, God, he says, that I am not like this tax collector over here. I give my money to the poor. I pray. I fast. I obey all the laws. Thank you, God, that I'm not like him. That's a Pharisee who has no need for a cross. He's doing just fine on his own. The tax collector, on the other hand, just cries out to God, beating his chest. He's got one line and one line only. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who am I? I'm a sinner. What hope have I in life and in death? God, be merciful to me. When when you've come to the place of that publican and you hear the message of the cross, well, then it sounds different. It still tells the truth about who you are. It doesn't tell you you aren't as bad as you thought you were. In fact, the cross is so ugly, it tells you you're worse than you thought you were. But at the same exact time that the cross levels any shred of pride you might try to hold on to, it also affirms you as a beloved child, beloved so greatly that God would give up the thing most precious to him in the whole world just to make you right. 
The cross says you have nothing on your own. And until you acknowledge that, it won't sound like good news. But when you do acknowledge it, when all you've got is God be merciful to me, a sinner, well, then the cross appears in all of its beauty. Not primitive, not otherworldly, not ugly. but a promise that there is no length your father will not go to make you right. Father, we pray that you give us eyes to see ourselves as that publican did. Eyes to see the sweetness and beauty of what is otherwise offensive and foolish. We know that it takes a work of your spirit to change what our minds and our hearts think about this message. We pray that you would do that work in us right now. In Jesus' name, amen.